You know what it is. That's right. It's time to talk money with your money nerd and financial coach. Now, tighten those purse strings and open those ears. It's the Money Talk with Tiff podcast. Hey, hey, hey. What up, what up? Happy Halloween, everybody. <laughs> Happy Halloween. I see you got good neighbors. Girl, what? <laughs> and, it's my first, we, and it's crazy because we just moved in here. We've been here like a month. So it's my first time really walking around and getting to know everybody. <laughs> so one of the parents was like, yeah, go knock on their door. I was like, they light off. She's like, nah, go knock on their door. I knocked on their door. Like a good neighbor. No, Listen, that's literally what it was given because I was tired. One thing about kids, it don't matter how long the day been. When Halloween comes, it's gonna be longer. Dang, that's crazy. <laughs> and happy Halloween, everybody! Happy Halloween! Did any yeah, of you guys dress up? Nope. Really. Neither did my kids. Nah. We, it was a regular day. We did trunk or treat like what last week the school had something, but that was it. I was, I was like, that's the school enough. did something. They did not. They let me down. I was hot. <laughs> Dang. They said, leave them fucking costumes at home, please. Thanks. Yeah, that's the only thing we did. And I didn't buy costumes for that either. We was walking around with hoodies. <laughs> Like trick or treat, we just need this candy so we can go home. <laughs> but anyway, we're gonna get started in a few. Did you all have a good week? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I did. I did. I had a good week. Really productive. It went by awesome. that quick. I don't know if it was just because it was like the end of the month or what, but last week went by really quick. Yeah, no, mine was really good. Got to connect with some really good people. Had some pretty amazing clients that were like really on their stuff. So it just made the work that much easier. So that was actually really, really fun. Really motivating too. Isn't that the best when you pick up good clients? (laughs) Really is. It really is. So like a lady, she's near retirement and I was just helping her sort through a lot of things and helping her think through a lot of the different decisions that she was making. So it was really, really good. Really enjoyed it. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. I love like when I get a client and they come in, they already got somewhat of a budget together. Really. They just come in to ask questions, making sure they doing it right. I'm like, you are my star student. I'm like, this is awesome. All right, y'all. I guess we're going to go ahead and get started and let everybody else trickle in as they may. We'll go ahead and start off with introductions. So my name is Tiffany Grant, and I am the host of Money Talk with Tiff, which is a financial education platform. So I teach people about money all day, every day. That's what I love. That's what I'm passionate about. Rakim? Hey, hey, everybody. My name is Rakim Stabri. I cover financial trauma and financial empowerment for people who look like me. And that's it. Mic drop. All right, Markia. <laughs> My name is Markia. I'm a influencer, meaning I make financial education content for social media, and I'm a certified financial education instructor. Perfect. Thank you. And Stephen? My name is Stephen Stack. I am a debt-free millionaire that 
teaches, finance, does financial consulting, helping people to build wealth and let them know that it is possible. That it is. And Kamari. <laughs> Happy Monday, everybody. Kamari Ellis here. I'm a tax accountant, former financial advisor, former institutional money manager, and I'm a host of a podcast, The Financial Pro Show, where I help people to increase their financial IQs so they can take full control of their money. Perfect. Thank you. So that is our round of speakers for tonight. And the topic that we wanted to hit on was the black. um, I was struggling with what to call this, but (laughs) we're going to call it the black impoverished experience. And what we mean by that is you often hear that as a people, we place more emphasis on Jordans versus paying our rent, so on and so forth. So really looking past that and seeing what other things contribute to us staying in poverty. So with that being said, I'm going to go over to Marquia to start us off because you did suggest this one. So I like to start off with the people who suggest the topic and then we'll have a conversation around that. So the idea for the conversation came from, this came up that day where that whole situation with the lady with the insensitive tweet pretty much saying, and it's just been a pattern that I'm noticing with a lot of personal finance content creators who are trying to shake the table in an attempt to get that engagement on social media. They are often perpetuating certain stereotypes, very harmful stereotypes that often are shackles in and of themselves. Because when you tell people something enough, they start to internalize it. Even though we say we don't care about what other people think about us, subconsciously we internalize a lot of those things. And one of the most common stereotypes with Black people in poverty is the whole, what you mean you ain't making enough money? Your son got Jordans. Or maybe if you stop doing this and stop doing, stop buying Um, they'll place material possessions and they'll compare them to a necessity like rent or food or something that's really stupid that I knew no damn well I did not buy this instead of doing this. But you're saying that as a way of perpetuating that harmful stereotype and also as a way of victim blaming. Because at the end of the day, a lot of these people in these communities are victims. They are victims of not making enough money. They are victims of living in an unbanked community. So they live in a desert, a banking desert. So they don't have resources that they can just walk into a bank or credit union and be like, hey, teach me about money. They don't teach financial education as a requirement in most districts. So it's just like, I really wanted to talk about all of us are in different spaces in the personal finance world. And I really wanted to talk about what are some things that we've encountered, whether you provide services or if you've just been in rooms with conversations. What do you think some of the actual problems are? Because I hear a lot of what people think the problems are. and It's always people who aren't in our communities. Right. So we always hear what people think the problem is. But what do we know the problem to be? And for me, I think one of the biggest problems, and it's probably one of the hardest problems to tackle when I'm dealing with people and having to tackle those, not to rock him, those financial traumas that's keeping them in the poverty, is the generational curse, generational wealth debate, right? People get so caught up in the unhealthy financial decisions that their families have been making for generations. And they believe that they've been cursed and there's nothing they can do to fix it, or they're so focused on trying to fix it and that they're making emotional or like knee-jerk decisions, but not really sitting down and evaluating the total situation and actually coming up with plans to circumvent the problem or to get through the problem even. And I definitely think that that's, 
it's crazy because LLC Twitter, I feel like, exacerbated it with the whole, if you want to build generational wealth, you need to get an LLC and you need to put your kids on and you need to and you need to do this and do this and do this. But they're not breaking down the steps or why are you doing this or, hey, this is not for you if those conversations aren't happening. So I feel like it's putting us deeper and deeper in that hole. But again, another rise to Rakim, like this goes back to we really need to sit down and break down those generational traumas. Why? Because a lot of these curses didn't start off as curses, right? These were decisions that our ancestors made to survive. For decades, we weren't even allowed to get bank accounts. We weren't even considered people. So then when they said, yeah, you can come put your money in the bank, of course people didn't trust it. That's where the whole putting your money in a shoebox or cutting a hole in your mattress thing came from. So that if anything happened, you could grab the cash and go if you had to leave in a hurry. But it's not like that anymore. But so many people are caught in that cycle and that quote-unquote curse and they can't see past it. So I've identified the problem and I've tried different things. But what do you guys think what else could be done to get past that? Yeah, so I'm glad you brought this topic up because it is really important to kind of dig in and tap into why we do the things that we do. Like you said, we sometimes go on autopilot with things, not really understanding why we're even doing this. So like we might just say, oh, my mom used to do this or my grandparents used to do this, so on and so forth. And usually what I see with my clients, and that's why a lot of my clients look at me as like a therapist too, even though technically I don't say I'm a therapist, but they kind of look at me as such because I'm like, okay, let's dig into why you're acting the way that you do or and whether that's a super saver, super spender, whatever that looks like. I'm like, okay, why are we doing this? Because I know part of my journey is that I had to dig in deep and figure out why do I do the things that I do? Why am I terrified of credit? Like, why is that an issue? Why is it an issue that I want to, if I want to spend money? Like, why is it like a physical reaction when I spend money? And so I think digging into that type of stuff is super important in order for us to get around some of these blockages that we have. And just to give a quick example, I have friends whose family has been on government assistance going back generations. And so when... Sorry, there came a time where I was like, oh, I got her on a job or whatever. And she started not showing up because she didn't want to lose her government benefits. And it's just we get on these cycles because we see that's what our mothers, fathers, grandparents, whoever do. And so for us, that's all we know. And meanwhile, I'm like, girl, like you can make so much money out here just if you let some of this stuff go. But it was just being taught like this is your safety net. Don't let it go type thing. So anyway, I want to go to Steven because he had his hand up first. Okay, so yeah, there's a lot of things that I think about for why we're in a lot of the spaces that we're in. So we can't ignore just our country's history which has put a lot of people that look like us in vulnerable positions. And like I think about things, so beyond just the, oh man, don't buy Jordans, don't buy this designer, that, of we we typically are in spaces where we're not making enough and we don't have a lot of social capital to put us in positions 
to make more. And so uh, I don't want to assume that people know what I mean when I say that. So social capital could just be you have friends or family or just people that are connected to folks that you're connected to that can, I'm going to use part of Marquis is the money plug, but can help plug you in <laughs> to some different opportunities of just think if you have someone in your family who they don't necessarily even have to own a business. Let's just say that they have a high level position within a company that could be a fortune 500 company, just some kind of corporate entity where they can help you in navigating to get a job there. Or even if they don't give you a job specifically where they work, just having people that you're connected to that can give you the game as you're coming up as a younger person to say, hey, these are the things you need to do to be prepared for said opportunities that may come up. Like I can remember going to college. So I went to Clemson. I'm a Clemson grad. And it was interesting that I would see people from seeing a fraternity from a culture and they already had the test banks for intro chemistry or whatever math class was being taken because I, I studied engineering while I was in school. So you had it where they knew, hey, this professor has been in this, this class for a decade and he just keeps recycling the tests. And we've got all of the test banks going back to when he started being a professor. And you may be saying, what does that have to do with money? And be in position to do well. If you're a, let's say you're a first generation college student, you wouldn't even know to even look for something like that, potentially. Like you're dealing with the expectations of being the golden child for your family. So you're navigating this thing fresh, which has been shown to put you in a negative spot of potentially dropping out of school, like you're more likely to drop out of school or not do as well, which the grades impact your opportunities. I've been several spaces, career fairs, where there's a minimum GPA that you have to have. A lot of the higher paying ones, you'll it, it'll be 3.0 plus. I've seen it plenty of times where it's three, two, three, three. So just things that people wouldn't even be thinking about, but you can submarine your opportunities bef before you've even thought about coming out of school. And last thing I'll say here, and I think it's a powerful story that I've, I've never forgotten, is I remember my freshman year at Clemson that I, there was a test that, we needed to study for like general engineering. And I remember there's this white guy that was staying in the same dorm as me. And the test was the next day. And I'm like, man, I'm studying. And I'm like, Hey man, like he, he was about to go out and I was studying. I'm like, Hey, we got a test tomorrow. Are you going to study for it? And I'll never forget it. He responded. He's like, oh man, I'm not really worried about that. My dad 
has his own business. I'm just here to get a degree. It doesn't really matter what my grades are as long as I graduate. Like I know what I'm going to be doing in the company that my dad runs. So I'm just here. So I don't look entitled essentially. So grades really didn't matter for him. He was just like, Hey, I'm here to just check the box. So now I'm not really worried about studying. I'm about to go have a party. So that's an example of social capital and I can let other people talk about history or just some of the different issues that we have, but it's hoping to just get us anchored and thinking about this conversation a little bit differently. Thank you. Thank you. And Rakim? Yeah, I was going to say to Marquia's question, I think it also, you mentioned you're a certified financial education instructor. I'm a financial certified financial education instructor. And one of the things as like the coursework for that designation is learning styles. And so I think it's the way that financial education is delivered, particularly on social media, as you see this phenomenon occur when you talk about the shame and the judgment and the guilt, that, that seems to be like a kick that, um, that financial educators have not so much from, and I'll use the term gatekeeping, but not so much from a gatekeeping perspective in that I have this knowledge and you don't, but more so because this is the way that I was taught, I have to sacrifice, I have to give up, I have to look at things from a restrictive perspective instead of a freeing perspective that that comes out in the content that's delivered. And because of the factors that we're mentioning, to Stephen's point, the nepotism, the historical, we'll call it imbalances, right, in terms of opportunity, it's being taught, it's being delivered by non-Black people from the perspective of everybody is where I'm at. And then it's because we're learning it secondhand, we're teaching it as if we are at that place where non-Black people are, and that there are not obstacles or history or variables that everybody mentioned already, so I don't have to belabor the issue, but we teach financial education as if those are not variables in the behavior. I appreciate the shout-outs from the financial trauma perspective because I think that that financial psychology on a very broad scale and financial trauma very specifically is something that more and more people are paying attention to And that more and more people, particularly Black people in this space, should be paying attention to because of the impact that it has on decision making, not from a place of ignorance. And I've been, you know, diving deeper into this lately. It's not necessarily from a place of ignorance and saying, I don't know better, so I'm not going to do better. Sometimes the case is I know better, but I can't do better and I can't do better because of these variables. And so I'm going to operate out of survival. And that's where like guilt is exacerbated because it's man, like I know I shouldn't throw this on a credit card, but I don't have nothing else right now. I don't have anybody to bail me out. So I got to make this decision and hope that things work out. And then I think the last thing that I'll say on the topic, and of course it'll circle back to me at some point, but I think that sometimes we got to laugh to keep from crying, right? Like sometimes we have to do the things that allow for us to cope in this space. And when I say in this space, I'm like in life. And sometimes that might look like buying a pair of Jordans, right? Sometimes that might look like going to Starbucks. Sometimes that might look like 
buying the newest video game or whatever because yes i have enough money to do this thing right now and it's not the most responsible thing for me to do right now but it's what it is that i have to give me a little bit of happiness in this world and i haven't shared this often but i had a conversation recently back in 20 i want to say 17 i could be lying but i started a nonprofit i co-founded a nonprofit that was centered around ending homelessness and me and my partner, you know, we're doing a lot of the work to unpack the spectrum that is homelessness. And most times when people hear homelessness, and certainly I'll raise my hand to be the person number one, you think that it's because somebody wants to be homeless, right? Like they stop going to work, they're lazy, they got on drugs, they have a mental issue, whatever. And when you think about the archetype of the homeless person in your mind, you might think about somebody who smells bad, is disheveled. Maybe they you think that the money that you donate to them, they're going to use for drugs or they're going to use for alcohol. And so you assign this stigma associated with some kind of substance abuse. And when I was digging deeper into the research and discovering more and more about homelessness, what I realized is that people pick up those vices while they're homeless. And so when they pick up those vices, they're picking up those vices to survive the circumstances that they might be in that's outside of their control. And I also think that it's important to qualify, like, how do you define homelessness, right? There are kids who go to school every day to eat. Like, that that's the reason why they go to school. They go to school so that they could get a meal. And in the school system, I believe, and I don't want to take this too far into a tangent, but I really want to drive this point home. The school system will classify somebody as homeless who doesn't have consistent, I forget what the language is specifically, but like a consistent place to lay their head. So this kid might stay with grandma one day, might stay with dad the next day, might stay with mom the next day, like might stay with a cousin the next day. They're bouncing around so they don't have a stable household, but they do have a home to go back to. And so there are a lot of like people who fly under the radar as invisible homeless people or invisible homeless children because the standards for homelessness that maybe you and I might have are very different than the standards for what homelessness looks like in the school system. So I think language matters. I think financial psychology matters. I think history matters. And I think the way that we deliver this education, most specifically to your point, Marquia, matters. Okay, thank you, Rakim. And I want to go to Molly. I think I did it right this time because you've been waiting to speak for a minute. Thank you. Hey, good evening, everyone. This is definitely up in Rakim's warehouse because I think more of how, when it comes to how money is treated, it can minimize it. But I feel like you can distill it into one of two sides. Money means either an opportunity or it's security. And depending on how you grow up, if you're on the privileged side, it's going to be more of an opportunity for you. So when you look at situations like what Steven just mentioned with someone going to college and it's more of an extracurricular thing to their benefit versus other people like, hey, this is my shot. I got to take it. I got to study on a Friday night. And you have people who, for them, because they came from privilege, the way they view money is completely different than someone who came from a situation where this is their only form of security and they've never had it. So when they do finally get it, they don't really know when they've arrived or they don't know how to handle it. 
And, and I'm sure a lot of us find ourselves somewhere in between one of the two or closer to one side than the other. But I know for me, it was always one of those things where it's like, okay, I got to get this amount. I got to get this or that. And now when you finally get it, you don't even know, you don't feel comfortable. You don't feel like you've arrived. There is no arriving for some of us. And when you do finally attain a certain amount, you may not, you know, it's not all it's cracked up to be perhaps. And I say all of that to say is that there, there is a lot of that psychology behind it where some people, as much as you want to save them, that there are some things that they have to work through on their own and you can usher them as much as you can. But it is one of those things where there's a big mindset behind all of this and money is simply a tool, how you use it. It really depends on a lot of where you're coming from and then what you know, and then how comfortable you feel in that space. And I appreciate the conversation. I think that's something to, to definitely think about as we talk to people, whether it's one-on-one or in a group setting, it's, has to, it's different from person to person. Yes, thank you. And before I go to Kamari, I just want to say, if you would like to speak, just request to be a speaker, if you want to add to the discussion. Mari? Thank you. I thought I was on time out for a minute. <laughs> no, I saw you. I saw you. It was just you know like, what? Well, I'm my own what I no. <laughs> no, I'm be real. So my my, my I'm only playing. It he had no, no but I, but I want to tell you. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> on my side, he had requested like almost when we first started, and so he couldn't have his hand raised all that time. So I was like, let me go to him first because he's been waiting so very patiently. Okay, go ahead, Kamari. Why, <laughs> gracious host. Thank you, Tiffany. <laughs> so, regards to the topic, and at some point, Marquis, I would like you to repeat your question because we have some new people in here, and I don't know that everybody heard the question, but I have different feelings about this. It's a very nuanced, very delicate thing. I do feel like a lot of times it's kind of treated with a big sledgehammer and it's a one-size-fits-all thing. But it's a lot of things. And I say that because of just my experience being in my dad's accounting office at a young age. So now, what do we see every tax season? We see folks clamoring for their tax refund. So much so, it becomes a phenomenon in our community. And a lot of more poor communities because it's not just black and brown folks. It's a lot of disenfranchised, a lot of people who are socially, economically disadvantaged who don't have access to a lot of things. Some of it is choice, though. Right? Some of it is choice. Some of it is trauma. Some of it is generational trauma. Some of it, though, is just pure ignorance, right? So I don't know if I can just throw it all into one bucket and say it's one thing. It's not a monolith. But I do feel that a lot of people have a sense of entitlement. They feel like I've worked this hard, so I deserve to spend my money frivolously. And so again, it can be very It's again, it's a very nuanced thing. And until you really understand a person's backstory, I try not to judge. I try not to judge anybody. This is a rule of thumb. But when we talk about people's lack of financial responsibility, 
or not having great financial priorities. There's so many variables to go on to that. So I just want to put that out there. Thank you, Kamari. And I'll echo that as well, because being on the ground, meeting with people and stuff that are coming to me with the financial traumas and stuff going on, it's so many different things. And that's why when people ask me questions, I'm like, it depends. I kind of joke and say, like a good lawyer, it depends, because it truly does. There's so many things that go into and shape how we treat money, how we interact with money how we flow with money, so many different things. So I just want to echo that as well. We've hit on a lot of them so far, but there's so much more that we could potentially hit on in this conversation when we're talking about why as a people we're in, and this is overgeneralizing too, but just talking about the impoverished experience. So Markia? There's a couple of things I wanted to touch on that a couple of y'all said. For Rakim and the homeless conversation, I love that you brought that up. And to Kamari's point, like he said, like there's no monolith, right? So even with homelessness, there's no one way to look at homelessness. But I think as a vet myself who has experienced homelessness, like I have such a different viewpoint of it. I was one of those people who was like, they homeless because they want to be. I was, I grew up. That's what I was told. That, so of course, that's what I thought. I had no reason to think differently until I actually started seeing these systems at work and how a lot of these systems are the reason that a lot of these people are living on the street. And then they live on the streets and have nothing else to turn to. So they turn to the drugs and the alcohol and whatever else they can get into to to take that pain away, especially in these big cities. And it's crazy because to me, I used to think Baltimore was a big city until I actually went to a big city. And homelessness was an issue in Baltimore. But it's 10,000 times worse in other cities and things like that. Yet, it's still, it's like they try to make it outlawed. Like, they try to criminalize homelessness when these are situations that people didn't ask to be homeless. A lot of them didn't want, don't want to be homeless. A lot of them are working hard to get out of homelessness. But it's not easy. But I definitely, like I said, I definitely thank you for bringing that up because that was one of those things that I did not, my viewpoint didn't change until I was exposed to it. Which brings up the conversation about DEI, right? That's a buzzword right now for a lot of companies and banks and credit unions and all of these people. It's a huge buzzword all of a sudden. Everybody wants to be diverse. But what when you come from a place of not having any diversity and then you just throw all of these diverse people into a room, you got Black, White, Indian, Asian, uh, Hispanic, all in this room, and then those stereotypes start coming out, what do you do? Because me, I will be honest, I'm one of those people who I react with anger first before I'm willing to stop and listen. And I know for a lot of y'all who get up here and talk, I'm younger than quite a few of you, if not all of you. And so I know that my knee-jerk reaction is wrong, and I'm, I'll pop myself on the hand later. But what do you all do in those situations when approaching it from a personal finance viewpoint? So let's say you are the only Black person. Rakim, for some reason, every time I see you on stage somewhere, other than Fincon, I think you're like the only Black person on stage. So like when you are in those situations as a personal finance educator, where somebody says something, and I don't think it's out of malice, but like they say these stereotype things or these generalizations that actually hurt the communities that they think they're helping with the comment, what do you do? Thank you for that. I'm going to just, just really quick. Real quick, can I just jump oh. real quick? 
Marquis, I asked you to restate the question so everybody can follow along. This is, we got some new people here. So the original topic of conversation was what are the real shackles that are really holding Black people in poverty? One of the more common things that we hear is if they would stop buying Jordans and pay their rent, we wouldn't have this problem. Like little snarky comments like that are actually really harmful generalizations of our community. But as people who have lived in these communities, our families have been a part of these communities for generations, what are the real reasons why we, we are stuck in poverty? And when I say we, I don't mean you individually, please don't take offense to it. As a community, we as in Black people experiencing poverty. Because you'd be surprised where the poverty line is. What is actually keeping us there? And not just those idiotic generalizations that everybody talk about. What do you think the actual problems are? And what do you think a solution could be? Or what do you see as a future solution? Okay, so thank you, Marquia. And thank you, Kamari, for bringing that up. I just wanted to do a little aside. We're talking about the homelessness conversation and stuff. So personally, I use the term unsheltered. And that's because there are some people who look at where they live as home and So when we say homelessness, they're not homeless to them. You get what I'm saying? Some people. And the reason I say that is because I've had experiences where I've had conversations, people that are unsheltered or living on the street or whatever, and they're like, this is home for me. So for us to say, oh, they're homeless, it's just, it's a little different. So I just wanted to put that out there. That's some terminology that I use. And then to answer your question about what you do in those situations, because I'm frequently one of the only Black people in the room most of the time. And usually I don't get offended. Like, I don't get offended. I just educate. And you see that on my Twitter, too. I'm like, okay, come with your stereotype, but I'm going to educate you on why this is false or why this is an overgeneralization or so on and so forth. So that's typically what I do because I'm an educator. So I'm like, I want to educate you on why this thought process doesn't work (laughs) all the way. And I've had that happen to me in corporate America, in boardrooms, everywhere. And that's the approach that I take. I don't get offended. I don't get upset because at the end of the day, there's people coming from ignorance as well. (laughs) Like they have no clue, no idea about other people's experiences. They live in a bubble, right? And so I'm like, I have to understand as well that not everybody comes from a point of malice, but sometimes they truly do not understand. They truly don't know. And so that's why I aim to educate. Now, if it escalates or they want to you to live in ignorance, then that's a whole nother story. But that's where I start. And I don't even know who had, oh, I think Tamika had her hand up first. I just had a quick story to Kamari's point about the tax returns. I was listening to a TED Talk by Dr. Michael Thomas. He said he was in one of the, the tax offices where there was a woman getting her tax return. And the person that was working with her, I don't think they were of color, was trying to figure out, like, or trying to get her to do something else with her tax return. She wanted to buy a TV, but trying to find out that the reasoning for her to get this big screen TV was that she wanted to keep her child and their friends from getting in trouble, keep them off the street, and just was hoping that having the TV for them to play video games 
would just keep them out of trouble. So that's just a different perspective. I guess like working with people is not always what it seems. It may look material, but it may be more of a life or death situation. Thank you, Tamika. That's powerful. That's real. And sometimes we come from a place of what we would do versus just getting to understand where people are coming from. I'm not sure who had their hand at first. So... I think it was Stack. Okay. <laughs> Let's go to Steven, and then we'll go to Anthony, and then Rakim. Gotcha. So... I'll answer Marquia's question where she, she was just saying, what do you do if you're the only black person in a room and are speaking? Norm- normally for me, I try to start with saying that black people aren't monolithic. The accounts that I'll give is what my personal experience has been and what are things that I have either read or researched on a topic and just say, hey, here's the lens that I'm coming from for how I'll see things in those spaces, just because we can put undue pressure on ourselves to try to speak for everybody when the reality is we really can't, even if we try. Just additional things that I thought about. And by the way, Tamika, I thought that was really good of using something that people would say, why are you getting a TV that seems to be frivolous? But it actually made a ton of sense for why someone would do that to try to protect one of their children, keep somebody off the streets. But I talked earlier about social capital is one thing that we have a lot of a lack of access to that. But I also think about just how if we've grown up potentially in an under-resourced environment, how it can impact how we look at things, what our desires are, how far up do we think we can actually go? Like, I've been in spaces before where people just unfortunately internalized having less than to the point where it it was just, it was like, hey, to be in a bad financial spot, they were equating that with the Black experience. So saying that, hey, struggle is synonymous with being black and that personally is heartbreaking for me to witness that to have people say that hey your blackness is more authentic if you don't have as much or if you grew up with less so i don't believe that that's a core thing i think that that is a symptom of some of the issues that we deal with, but it was just something that someone had said something earlier that I wanted to at least highlight it of when negative things start to get rolling downhill, we can be our own worst enemies in some cases. Obviously for some people, I'm not speaking for everybody, but just wanted to share a different perspective. Thank you for that, Stephen. And I just want to say, when Marquis was asking, when you're in a room full of white people, what do you do? And I want to say, I feel like it's part our duty because to keep it real, like a lot of times we may be the only interaction that they have with a black person. And so for me, I'm like, okay, I need to take this opportunity because 
I'm speaking on behalf of everyone, even though it's hard to (laughs) sometimes, but to be real, this might be the only time we get our voices heard. And so I'm like, this is something that I feel is a duty that when we are in these spaces to make sure that we are the voice in that moment, at least. So let's go to Anthony and then Rakim. Hey everybody, my name is Anthony. I'm the host of the About That Wallet podcast where we help you build strong financial habits. So coming to just hearing about this thing about the homelessness, like my dad is homeless in Baltimore. It's funny that you brought both of those up, my kid. So seeing that with him, and I've been talking to him, trying to figure out why he is homeless. And one of the things is he was the one who always told me about the hustle mentality. He was the one who taught me how to pretty much flip things because he we used to deliver furniture and what he would do was actually like with bed frames they were really cheap we just toss them in the, in the truck or whatever and then we used to deliver them but people want those and then we'll take the old ones and what we'll do is flip it over to somebody else that actually is a reseller so then he'll just sell a truckload of bed frames to somebody else and like my dad knows how to make the money and move things around but the thing that got him to stay homeless was that he fell into depression and he hasn't gotten out of that. So he knows what it feels like to not be there, but he also stays in the streets because he felt like a lot of these people need somebody to be there, need somebody to talk to because their children don't come talk to them. And also, and so many other things. So like for me, if I go to Baltimore, I have to actually try to like ride up and down Pratt Street. If you guys ever been up to Baltimore, Pratt Street is hard to navigate. So it's a lot of slow driving, people honking at me. But, you know, if I see my dad out there, I usually stop, give him a hug, see how he's doing, checking up on him. But also coming around to, like, how do we get out of the, I guess you could say, the generational of, I was looking at somebody's uh, Twitter feed, and they were talking about the crabs in the barrel mindset. They said they're not meant to be inside the barrel. And I actually thought that was pretty powerful because, when we all looking at each other inside this small space in this neighborhood, we are looking at, okay, so I'm good. How do they get there? Instead of asking how, we actually like, well, let, let me take what they have so I can have it because they shouldn't be above me in this situation. But to try to teach and get people out of that mindset, I guess we have to also teach and train how do we, how does it look to be on the opposite side? And so that's why I usually try to challenge people to go head on and take a moment to go head on and do your wish list. If you want that big house, then take a moment to go head on and go to an open house and check it out. If you want that live like a big steak or whatever, and open houses are free. So, you know, you can just walk right in and take a look around or whatever. Just say no house. But some of those free things that they can do to get out of that mindset and get out of, not really get out of the environment, because I know it takes a lot financially and also emotionally. And I think that's one of the things that we tend to forget or tend to overlook in the financial space. I know we want to make it personal finance personal, but sometimes we miss out on those feelings. And like, how does having money make you feel? How does spending money make you feel? And also, how does losing money make you feel? Like, those are the things that I, I would like to start talking about more because me personally, I know that I'm at fault of it too. But that's one of the things I'm working on going forward is talking about the feelings around money because money doesn't have feelings. And we all know that 
we, it goes wherever we tell it to go. But I just wanted to add that to that topic. So I, I yield my mic at this time. Thank you. Thank you, Anthony. And I'm so glad you brought that up about going to open houses and stuff. Cause y'all, I would tell you, I used to go to the parade of homes. I don't know if y'all have that in your area where like all the contractors and stuff show off their renovations and stuff. And you go all to all these people's houses. I was going to that before I had a house. Cause I was like, Ooh, I just want to get some ideas and highly recommend. I love visualization. I definitely believe in it. So thank you for bringing that up, Anthony. All right, Rakim. That was quick. I wasn't prepared. First off, a shout out to Tamika for mentioning Dr. Michael Thomas. Great guy. I had a conversation with him recently, and I think it's relevant to bring him up because in that conversation, answering Marquia's question, one of the things that we touched on was some advice that had been given by another Black man in the space, Dr. Preston Cherry, who said to me, Rakim, you talk a lot about the Black experience. You spend a lot of time on the Black stuff. And that's good, so long as you are choosing to do that. And so I have brought that up to, to Dr. Thomas because they're friends. And he goes, yeah, I agree. And he went on further to say and to really elaborate that there are times where we will be the only Black voice, but we will be using words that are not our own. And... Dr. Preston Cherry, what he was warning me of is not to allow myself to be manipulated in the position that I have and the authority and the influence that I have to let somebody else dictate the words that come out of my mouth. And to mark your question about how do I navigate that space, there's a combination of some of the things that were shared. Stephen has shared not identifying as the voice of all Black people, and I'm paraphrasing. I'm very intentional about saying this is my experience. I'm not the spokesperson for Black people. I know that my experience as a Black man, there are going to be parallels, but it's not going to be exactly the same as another Black man's experience. The second thing is that corporate America, if I could give corporate America kudos for anything, made me very comfortable in spaces where I was the only Black man who had some kind of pull, right? Some kind of influence, whether I'm a manager or a leader or a supervisor or whoever. So I feel very comfortable in those spaces where I have found myself battling of late is maintaining that level of comfortability while also maintaining the level of authenticity that I have found slash discovered since leaving corporate America. And if you've been following me for a while, if you haven't been following me for a while, my content after I left corporate America was, I'll use the word very radical in that corporate America will radicalize you. I was very anti-corporate and most angry. There's a lot of trauma there. There still is trauma there. But in that, as I've let some of that simmer down and boil out, what I realized too is that I don't make any apologies for wanting to create our own spaces. And so I stand on very strongly in environments where I'm either the only Black man or one of few Black men who will talk about that in that way. I'm not looking to integrate into systems or beg for the recognition or the attention or the dollar assigned through these marketed DEI campaigns. I'm very intentional about empowering and being empowered. And what that looks like can vary. But in my opinion, that looks like equity. That looks like opportunity. That looks like building me up or people like me to go out and do the thing 
without having somebody come and save us. And so I go into those spaces with that energy, with that charge, almost kind of like, I don't care, right? Like almost, I'm trying to, I'm trying to censor myself here, but I'm not looking for white validation and white approval in those spaces. And I think that that's so important as we have these conversations, not that everybody has to adopt that philosophy, but that philosophy is present in these conversations because what I've noticed as we have these kumbaya moments, everybody's equal, everybody can work together, blah, 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 is that in that our struggle, black struggle specifically, gets lost in the shuffle or gets buried in that in that language of diversity and inclusion or in those labels of POC and minority communities. And so we stop being the priority. And so long as I have a voice in any room, I'm going to raise that as I'm a priority. My, my family is a priority. My community is a priority. And so that's where that advocacy is going to be. And I just have an amazing talent of being able to deliver that without coming off as threatening. And so I love, I thrive in that space. Thank you, Rakim. I'm going to go to Kamari and then Quinn and then Marquia, and then we might be at time. Well, Rakim hasn't done a time check yet, so. Yeah, yeah, we got permission to go over it. But I want to read uh, or reiterate Marquia's question, how I kind of heard it and processed it. And so, I just wrote down, what is the reason our community is lacking in creating or creating wealth and creating wealth perpetuation or perpetuating wealth? And I kind of feel like we're kind of dancing around it a little bit. There's a couple of things, but I don't feel like we directly addressed it. So I'm going to address the elephant in the room. And no, all black people are not the same, but we all share a common experience so we're all linked and so I would say there is a lack of black love and the reason there's a lack of black love is Willie Lynch did a hell of a job and a lot of us don't talk about it and if you're not familiar with Willie Lynch yes Willie Lynch is a fictional character but a lot of those tactics are real and a lot of those things are still here today and so the question is, how do we go about overcoming a lot of the program? It's interesting because recently, a couple of weeks ago, I shared a post on my IG page by a popular caster talking about the Jewish community and how they work together. And then Kanye happened, or Ye happened. And then this post exploded and I had absolutely nothing to do with Ye, but everybody conflated and made it about Ye. And so, cool. But the recurring theme that I see over and over again is that we can't do it or somebody is stopping us from doing it. And I always sit back and I wonder that, yes, racism is real. Yes, institutionalized racism is real. But a lot of the reasons people cite that we can't do things are things that happened over 100 years ago. And not to say that they're not important because they are a big history buff. But a lot of things have changed in that time. And so when do we try to test out and see if it is indeed doable? When we sit in a room here, donors, investors, progressive-minded people, what is really stopping us? 
Trump's real wise way and what can we do to attack it. So my only answer again is I believe we need to spread more black love because a lot of us don't believe in ourselves, let alone our brothers and sisters who are standing right next to us. And that's the only thing I have in terms of a real concrete way of doing it. And when I say concrete, like when you see a brother or sister walking down the street and say hello, that's simple. We're not all threats. When you meet somebody at FinCom, we all kind of got together and we created the cookout. Just show love. Whether it's offering some food or just giving a kind word, you'd never be, you'd be surprised how far a kind word can really go when you're really genuine and really caring about another human being who just so happens to be black. Thank you, Kamari. And I just want to say really quick, I feel like you hit the nail on the head and married a lot of these concepts together because like you said, look at all the people in here, right? We're all doing something to better our community. And a lot of people don't think what we do is possible, but surrounding yourself with like-minded individuals and not only that, also getting it out there that there is, there are different ways that you can do this. There are different ways that you can survive and thrive and do whatever it is that you want to do. I think that is the key. <laughs> I think having more community around all of us is key. And that's why I tell my students, because I teach freshmen, I'm like, y'all network, 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 be around people that are where you want to go or be around people that are on your level. And then also bring up someone that may not be on your level yet. And I feel like and that goes back to when we first started this conversation and somebody brought up mentorship. I had a mentor in corporate America. I talk about her all the time. If it wasn't for her, there's a lot of things I wouldn't have known and wouldn't have been able to navigate as efficiently as I did. So it's all about your network and who you surround yourself with as well. So let me go to Quinn and then Marquia. Hey, I'm a little late to the party, so apologies, but uh, this is a cool group. I'm happy to have found it. Like a lot of what I've heard so far, I guess the way I would respond to and interpret the prompt is just similar to uh, Kamari. Potentially, it's just do the best you can to be a good person and a good steward for the community. Yes, we're not a monolith. That is absolutely true. I agree wholeheartedly with Steven. We're not a monolith and it's annoying sometimes when we're seen as such, but like to the extent that you can be a good representative, be a good representative to people outside the community and be a good representative or a good member to people inside the community, show love and show what it means to be yourself, but also to be like someone who is of a part with the black experience and the black diaspora because at the end of the day we are for better or worse going to be judged by each other and judged by people outside so it's better to be the best version of yourself as much as possible as often as possible rather than to say you have to it doesn't matter like how you act it doesn't matter if you're acting a fool it doesn't matter if you're a jerk to somebody it doesn't matter like i don't care about this guy because he's not my actual brother so i'm just gonna ignore him no like if you see someone who might deserve a kind word or a hello or just a smile give him that or her that or whatever and uh, yeah that's what i got for now thank you so much quinn and just to bring up fincon one more time <laughs> but you know when i was at my very first fincon in 2019 we 
like all the black and brown people got together and we were like if you come across a black and brown person say hey or nod smile acknowledge each other because we're all here for a common cause so anyway I just wanted to throw that out there and that's actually what I do even around my city my town I'm like if I see another black or brown person on the street I smile nod say hey if I don't get it back that's cool but Quinn said be the best person that you can be and then you'll be surprised how much you can spread Marquia this wasn't what I was going to say, but since you brought up FinCon, this was my first FinCon, the one that just passed. And I remember, I felt like such a fish out of water. Like, I didn't know anybody. I drove 15 fucking hours to Orlando just to go to this big old convention because everybody was saying how life-changing it was going to be. And all these people, it was like once one person told me about FinCon, I just kept seeing it everywhere and people was like, oh here's my picture from my first FinCon and now they're making like 20 figures a year so it was like I just had to be there and I, I remember the exact moment I found out about the cookout I was standing by myself looking awkward trying to build up the confidence to go talk to somebody and then Kamari walks up with that DMX raspiness was like hey how you doing <laughs> and just instantly told me about the cookout and connected me with all of you and I had met Rakim earlier that day but I can definitely say that surrounding yourself um, with the right people who look like you. It's not enough to just be in a room with a bunch of different people and a bunch of white people who are super successful and things like that. Like, it's, that's not enough. I need people who look like me, who have had similar upbringings, who I can make those little jokes like, did your mother beat you with the shoe or the hanger? And we joking, but you get what I'm saying? Like, those commonalities. I need those so that I can see myself in those spaces, so that I can envision my journey through your journey and uh, this is going to make me emotional y'all know I'm a bucket of water but what I will say is since FinCon and y'all introducing me to the cookout but I thought my life has changed within the last like year or so bro like the since FinCon the things that I've been able to accomplish the things that I've been able to achieve even today with landing that job I never would have thought that job was a possibility if Kamari would have told me, girl, if you're going to college just because you think that's what you should do and not because that's what you want to do, then going to college is not for you. I really would have still been in school like, no, nah, I'm not going to apply for nothing. But I stopped. Kamari said that to me and no shit, no lie. I literally dropped all my classes because I was like, shit, Kamari said I ain't got to go. Like, oh, oh, damn. <laughs> Look and, at you, Kamari. But in all actuality, that was probably the best thing that could have ever happened to me because after doing that, started focusing on my I took that time started focusing on my content a little bit more but expressed what I wanted to you know get done y'all know I've been talking about getting into marketing and advertising for a while and I just always felt intimidated because I didn't have that degree in commercial like the degree don't define you if you the shit with or without that piece of paper and now I clearly I'm the shit because I just got that job this is literally like the highlight of my life but I would never been to this point if it was never for the conversation that got me to the cookout, that connected me with all of you, that made me comfortable enough to share my story with you all. You get what I'm saying? Like, it's, we need more of us. We need more people who look like us, who have goals that align with ours, who had similar upbringings. And to Steven's point, I can't wait till we actually talk about that. I don't think that whether or not you struggled as much as I did, I don't think that defines the Blackness. I think it's the village aspect. You see how we all just naturally pulled together and like we made that village. It's nothing for us to jump into our group chat like, yo, anybody know anything about this? And then boom, you're getting six, seven, eight different links 
of people like, yeah, man, you can go here, 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 here. Or, hey, has anybody heard of this? And then the next thing I know, I'm getting like 20 different articles for me to read to go over certain concepts. We need more spaces like that. We need more spaces like this one that Tiffany and Rakim have, have created for us. Because if it wasn't for these spaces, and if it wasn't for these people in these spaces, then where would some of us be? Oh, I love that. And I have so much to say, but I don't want to go So I'm going to go to Stephen and then Family Abide, and then I'll wrap up. Okay, awesome. So, man, Kamari, I really think you hit the nail on the head when you hit on Black love of just us first really learning to love ourselves well and that then we start to love others well when we do that. And there's so many different directions to go, whether it be love, building families, all of these different layers all help to build better future people. You know what I mean? Like I still think about the fact that coming out of the civil rights movement that 80% of people of our people were married, which I'm like, that's crazy in my mind that it was so high when there were so many things that were against us at that time. But a lot of the, the refuge we were able to take in the love that we had for each other. So I do think that that is really, 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 really key to to really check how we view ourselves and get a clearer picture to love ourselves, which I know we're going to get there. The whole struggle thing, we're going to get there of having that conversation another day, but to the point where I still remember very clearly, but I had great structure in my life. My parents were in my life and were just loving great examples of people to where it, it colored the response that I'm going to share. And then I'll stop to, to let the man that Rob with Family Abide speak. But I can remember being a young person in grade school and just speaking and someone being like, hey, man, man, like, why do you talk white? And me responding under the age of 10, are you saying that talking black, what is talking black if talking white is being articulate? Oh, oh, man, that's not what I was trying to say. No, that's exactly what you were trying to say. Man, you need to not internalize that white supremacy and prejudice and racism towards yourself. Oh, man, dang, bro, you're just getting deep. I'm like, nah, man, I'm just getting real. But that response stemmed from having father and mother who loved me and and put me in a space where I had a lot of self-confidence to say, man, I'm not less than anybody. Even if the person looks like me and is trying to make me think that I'm less than anything that I was created to be. But it was rooted in love. And ultimately that ended up being a good exchange with that person because I wasn't looking to embarrass them. It was more of a, hey, man, let's, I don't want you to think that way any longer because you're not going to have me think that I'm less than because my, my subjects and verbs agree. But I don't want you to carry this with you. But it was rooted in love. So I'll stop there. Appreciate y'all. 
Thank you, Stephen. And yes, I've had those same experiences as a young person. People are like, oh, you talk white, you act white, that type of thing. And I've had those same conversations. Like, what do you like? What is that supposed to mean? Explain. So anyway, family abide. Hey, how y'all doing? Great conversation. This is Robert speaking. Y'all hit on so many points. One of the things that really hit me, though, was I had a quote in the library at Howard. It was like, it's not the exact quote. I don't know. It's like, when the chains of slavery were cut, the shackles that bound us were still remained on our arms. So even though slavery was stopped and was broke, those shackles, we carry those shackles with us. We are the living embodiment of those shackles. And it shows up in different ways all the time. Some people respond differently to those shackles. Not to say that you can't move, but the way in which you move have been permanently altered because of those experiences from our ancestors, from our previous generations. And I guess else, whether you're in the military, two people can go through the exact same event and they don't respond the same. And we have to understand that, be open to it. But when Marquia was talking about, it's such a large question, like why are we not advancing as a society, as a people? And I think it's a couple reasons why, but one of the things is that I don't, and, and, and Kamara hit it as far as love, I don't think we see ourselves in the same struggle. When we all are enslaved, then we all have the same struggle that we, get, we, we need to fight. But when, so they talk about that a lot in the 60s and 50s when we had more of a family structure. Sachs was talking about that when we had people were married, when you had black lawyers and black doctors. The unified struggle was the same. If you had two gangbangers, if you had somebody who was just, just a specific, you had a blood and crip and they found themselves in Germany, those people, those they're natural, they're supposed to be, they're supposed to be adversaries, but in Germany, they're allies. So I just feel like because we have lost our struggle, sometimes our universal person, like how we supposed to empower ourselves, then we don't have this love. We lose our love. We lose ways to, to connect to each other. And then Marquia, as we are talking about just being in, in, in certain spaces, in certain rooms, I just think the audacity, as Stax was saying, the audacity of being you empowers yourself to inspire other people. So when somebody says something ignorant, a lot of times people don't know. When you're in healthcare or something, like a lot of white people, they don't have experiences with black people on a regular basis. Whether it be their experiences of little baby or 50 or whoever, you know, they might create these caricatures of people and say, these are the experiences. So you just have to be authentically you. And by you being you and you being great and you inspiring and pushing them and pushing yourself, it, it allows them to say, hey, well, she's different. And then they'll say something, well, you're not like the other people. You're not like one of them. And then what does that mean? But you just got to keep on pushing because at that point, it's, well, I can either let this hate push me to be more, turn them into what they want to see. So a lot of times I'm just like, okay, well, we just got to keep the conversation moving, keep it going forward. Two other things. I just said so many things. It was another conversation, I think, one time. We was in a classroom while I was at college, and they tried to say who had the greatest, who had a, more of a struggle, Black men or Black females? And even simple questions like that, I said, this is such a terrible question because what happens is that we end up turning on ourselves. 
like, well, oh, my struggle is greater, or your struggle is greater. Is well, how are we going to move or improve ourselves as a people, as a society, if we compare in our struggles? And when Stacks is saying, well, you ain't black because you ain't had the struggle, or you lose your authenticity, even if you were come from the struggle and now you came out, as well, you can't go back and help those people because you're still not part of that struggle. So the authenticity of the experience shouldn't have to be struggle. It should be success, and we should be defined by that success and uplifting people. And then one of the last things is just the privilege. I'm sorry, I'm going through all this. I know we got to cut it, so I'm just going through this real quick. It's privilege. And I think sometimes we look at privilege wrong. Obviously, there's a lot of different types of privilege. Obviously, white people, they don't see whiteness as a privilege, and that's the problem. It's like zero to, for them. It's not positive. It's not negative. It's just zero on the number line. But it is a privilege. But I had this conversation with my wife at one point. I was like, you know, coming from a two-parent household is a privilege. And she was like, no, it's not a privilege. Everybody deserves to come from a two-parent household. I was like, that's probably how white people feel to be white. Everybody deserves to be this. But you don't understand that because you come from a two-parent household, you afforded certain opportunities in life that somebody else may not have. And being white, I'm not saying whiteness is a bad thing, but you got to understand that is a privilege that has allowed you to enter certain spaces that I cannot naturally enter into unless I work or maneuver in a certain way to get in there. So it's just so many things. And like my kids, having these opportunities, having these conversations, uplifting, pushing other people to be great, truly loving on your brother and your sister, loving your family. And one last thing is, Rakim was talking about it. Like, sometimes we have to coexist. Everybody can't be Malcolm. Everybody can't be Martin. Everybody can't be Martin. It's like you have to have different versions of that expression. Some people are going to be the radical. Some people are going to be the unifier. Some people are going to be the visionary. But we have to allow each other to exist in that space so that we can push all of us as a culture, as a people together. Because Martin unfortunately doesn't reach everybody but without martin you ain't going to be able to get to the president because the president's not going to bring malcolm x into the room in order to have those conversations so you got to have those coexisting in certain spaces so that you can move everybody and connect at certain times so that was a lot but thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak all facts no it was a lot but you did a wonderful job of summarizing everything. So I appreciate you because that was, you hit the nail on the head with everything. And so I feel like that is a perfect note to end on. So thank you so very much. If you all are in here and this is your first time, maybe joining the space, we do this every Monday night at 9 PM for Noir space for black money talk. So we have these types of conversations and others, and then it also gets replayed on the Money Talk with Tiff podcast. I will also say, like we were saying before, so you got some homework assignments, okay? I was thinking about these as everybody was talking. So number one, (laughs) make sure you are following all of these people in the room because we all are apparently like-minded individuals and you need to build your network in order to grow. So we've hit on that a few times. So make sure that you are surrounding yourself filling up your feed (laughs) with Black excellence. So that way you as well can aspire to do that. And then also another piece of homework that I thought about is this week, you have all week, Monday to Monday, spread something that you know. So share some knowledge with someone being the Black and Brown community. Share some knowledge. Um, Also say, hey, if you out about in your city, say hey to someone. 
that maybe you don't know or give them a smile. You never know what some, somebody's going through. And I think we hit on a lot of that tonight is just making sure that we're more community minded, community centered. And so we can start working on that today. And so I just wanted to leave you all with those two pieces of homework assignments. So that way we can start making the changes that we want to see in the world. Like I said, we do this every Monday night at 9 p.m. So make sure you join us next week. We center around a certain topic. So next week it'll be something else interesting. Uh, So we hope that you can join us. Thank you so much to my co-host Rakim and then all the speakers that came up on stage and everybody that contributed their energy to this conversation. I truly appreciate you. And I hope to see you all next week. Bye. Thank you for listening, joining, and being a part of the Money Talk with Tiff podcast this week. You can check Tiff out every Thursday for a new Money Talk podcast. But if you just can't wait until next week, you can listen to previous podcast episodes at moneytalkwitht.com or follow Tiff on all social media platforms at Money Talk with T. Until next time, spend wise by spending less than you make. A word to the money wise is always sufficient. <laughs>